But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. Today I'm chatting to Jessica Scott, who's a principal investigator out of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. If you don't know about Memorial Sloan, you should. Uh, the work of Jessica, Lee Jones, and their group in general, uh, they really are world leaders in areas of aerobic exercise and, and cancer. They do a ton of different uh, research on all different types of cancer, mostly related to aerobic exercise, anything from basic research in mice all the way up to really interesting human applied research. So I'd recommend, uh, if you're interested in this area, following the work of, of both Jessica, Lee, and other members of their lab. And today I'm chatting to Jessica specifically about that, about areas of cardiotoxicity and cancer, um, what it is, how it comes about, how there's kind of different mechanisms for, for causing cardiac dysfunction, and also how aerobic exercise can act as, as a protective or have a protective effect on this. We also chat about one of their recent papers, a really interesting paper just recently published in metastatic breast cancer patients. And it, it, the unique thing about this paper is that they have some of the metrics that if you remember from my episode with Tormund Nielsen a few episodes back, we talked about this idea of dose response. And what was interesting about the work of, of Jessica in this population was that there was a lot of issues with tolerance and and how much these uh, metastatic breast cancer patients could actually do in terms of aerobic exercise. So we dive into that study and, and Jessica gives some great insight into some of the nuances that probably the paper itself didn't actually show. Um, so with that, I'll let you just sit back and enjoy uh, both the chat about cardiotoxicity and, and all the intricacies of the, the research project and enjoy the show. All right, Jess, so I really appreciate you jumping on the call. Uh, I know you are exceptionally busy in, in the lab there at Memorial Sloan Kettering, so to, to get your time is, is hugely valuable to me and to a lot of listeners um, that have reached out to me when I told them that you're going to be on the show to, <laughs> to pick your brain about certain questions. Um, but let's start with a little background because you've had an interesting journey um, coming from originally from Canada indirectly through NASA to where you're at now at the Memorial Sloan Kettering lab so let's talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of exercise oncology sure it's been a bit of a different journey than i think most researchers i started off as an athlete and i was very interested in what happens to the heart as a result of very long endurance training so most of my phd studies were looking at uh, eccentric hypertrophy and what happens after very long endurance races in the heart. And that led me to look at orthostatic intolerance, which is very common in athletes. When they stand up, they start to feel a little bit lightheaded. 
we did one of those studies and it turns out a lot of the work had been done in astronauts looking at orthostatic intolerance. So that led me down a path of looking at cardiovascular function in astronauts. And it turns out that spaceflight is a very toxic environment and it causes a lot of changes to every single system in your body, which was fascinating. So for my postdoc, I applied and was accepted to go to NASA Johnson Space Center. And I got to spend a little over six years working with astronauts and looking at the physiological changes that happen with spaceflight and primarily using exercise to counteract a lot of those changes. And as it turns out, uh, cancer therapy is very much like spaceflight. It's very toxic to a lot of systems in the human body. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of research that has looked at exercise as a countermeasure against those multi-system changes. So throughout my time at NASA, I was also working a little bit with Lee Jones. And just last year, we finally got together and I joined him at Memorial Sloan Kettering to start looking at more in-depth processes of using exercise to counteract therapy-induced deconditioning. It's really interesting you were talking about uh, the space flight because, you know, the majority of, of information that's put out to the masses is obviously around muscle mass and and uh, the depletion of it with space flight. There's very little uh, media exposure, or at least, you know, large-scale information given on how toxic it can be to, to the cardiovascular system. Yeah, it's funny. If you look back when space flight started in the 1960s, the clinicians were initially concerned that astronauts would have heart failure as soon as they went into space or have a heart attack. So the majority of research has actually been in the cardiovascular system in spaceflight because they were so concerned with these cardiovascular issues. So there are cardiovascular issues in space. Astronauts lose muscle mass, bone mass. Uh, they have neurovestibular changes, brain changes, a whole host of multi-system deconditioning that happens in space and you've you obviously made that great uh link to to cancer and, and its therapies as well and i love your your work and uh, particularly your, your your recent publications in the area of cardiotoxicity and i think your white paper in particular does a great job of breaking down um kind of the need for targeted exercise therapy so let's expand on that a little bit and start with um, you know, why cardiotoxicity is a big deal, what causes it in cancer and, and um, what sort of treatments are people more susceptible of, of it from? Yeah, thanks so much. The, so toxicity in cancer is actually very similar to what happens in spaceflight where patients are exposed to three basic hits. So a patient may come in at diagnosis and they might have a baseline risk factor such as obesity or hypertension or older age. And that is then compounded by the direct hit of anti-cancer therapy itself. And a lot of these therapies such as anthracycline-based therapies are directly toxic to the heart and the vasculature. 
And the third hit that a lot of people don't consider or don't talk about are indirect hits. So these are things like when patients are undergoing chemotherapy, they don't feel well, they feel nauseous, so they don't exercise as much, they're less physically active, and they may gain weight or lose weight and become uh, more deconditioned. So it's really all of these three hits together that impact the cardiovascular system as a whole. Yeah, I like that idea of the multiple hit hypothesis where there is there can tend to be a focus, particularly people who aren't as well versed in the exercise realm. It's kind of considered just a natural consequence of treatment um, and highlighting the indirect effects, I think, are really important to then setting the, the foundation or providing the, the basis for exercise therapy. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the a really under-researched area right now is looking at those indirect hits. And a lot of really nice preclinical work has looked at the direct injury of chemotherapy on cardiomyocytes and the vascular structure, but they haven't really combined the whole system into one, looking at if you have high blood pressure and you're then exposed to anthracycline and you don't exercise as much, what are the the acute consequences as well as the the long-term consequences. So we obviously have a few, if you look at that kind of cancer continuum, we have a few different spots where we'd ideally target, you know, preferentially before treatment, um, you know, certainly during treatment and, you know, worst case scenario after treatment. What is the evidence or where are we at in terms of aerobic exercise providing some sort of protective effect or maybe even acting as an adjuvant therapy Um, to this toxicity? That's a great question. And I think there is an underlying assumption that, of course, exercise works. It will be protective at any stage. And there's been a lot of work in other clinical areas like heart failure or COPD that have shown that exercise is effective across that continuum. But we looked at this and we found that there's actually very little evidence in cancer patients on what the impact of exercise is on the cardiovascular system itself. A lot of the work in exercise oncology has looked at patient reported outcomes or kind of secondary measures, but there's not a lot that have looked at the impact of exercise on blood pressure or lipids. And there is a lot more that has looked at the impact of exercise on cardiorespiratory fitness or VO2 peak. We just looked at a study in uh, completed meta-analysis of 48 studies that have used VO2 peak as an endpoint. And exercise is effective at improving VO2 peak, but there's not a lot on those other cardiovascular endpoints. How much do you think that is a product of uh, how new the field is in terms of the initial work kind of being directed at the safety and efficacy of exercise and now we're starting to see branches in terms of people becoming more targeted with their their research interests and their study designs and, and what, their, what questions they're looking to answer? Yeah, absolutely. I think really cancer therapy and chemotherapy as a field as a whole is a very young field. Cancer therapeutics, if you look at it, they really didn't start coming online until the 1960s and 1970s. So we're just starting to see some of the the late effects that patients are dying earlier of cardiovascular disease. And hand in hand, the field of exercise oncology is even younger. 
Uh, it's very emergent. The first randomized control trial was in 1988, and it really didn't start taking off until the 2000s when it was very focused on can patients even do this? Just like heart failure back in the 40s, the, the dogma was just relax, take it easy, don't exercise. So there's been a whole paradigm shift where we're starting to come around to the concept that it will be okay to exercise and it is probably beneficial, but we need a lot more evidence to get to that point where we can definitively say, yes, exercise is beneficial and we should start implementing rehabilitation programs like they do with heart failure or COPD. In your paper, you kind of outline some screening strategies and, and of course, screening is is one of the most important parts of identifying people who are at risk and uh, what's your ideal battery of screening for cardiotoxicity in this population yeah there are a whole host of different metrics to choose from and it's obviously very difficult to balance what is the most clinically relevant endpoint with what is feasible but the endpoint that I'm particularly partial to is cardiorespiratory fitness or VO2 peak because it is very prognostic in uh, both non-cancer as well as cancer populations. We know we can use it to then prescribe exercise, aerobic exercise prescriptions, and um, it can change as a result of exercise. So we can use it as a marker of whether exercise is efficacious. So we're, we use cardiorespiratory fitness as our primary endpoint, and that's also what astronauts use. That's what we used at NASA to quantify the health of astronauts. So it's, it's a very useful tool to assess multiple systems at one time. So what about when, when you know, our ideal scenario is that we have standard exercise oncology clinics with you know perhaps a metabolic heart that we can measure these things uh, what about some some field-based estimates or when we're trying to give this information to the masses um, as you said a big part of this is is clinical relevance and kind of gold standard versus feasibility and um, what would you be comfortable with saying you, you know across the board if if there's someone in the YMCA or personal trainer what test would you like to say that's you know that's a decent surrogate you can still use it at an endpoint and it can it can be okay for exercise prescription i think an exercise tolerance test would be an appropriate endpoint i think we still don't know enough about the cardiovascular toxicity aspects of some of the therapies to say in widespread use uh, anybody could do an exercise tolerance test. In all of our studies, we do uh, a cardiopulmonary exercise test with 12 lead ECG to document whether there are any unknown or subclinical cardiovascular abnormalities. And I think that's a very important first step is to establish what is the incidence of subclinical cardiovascular disease using an exercise test before we start implementing it out in the field. Uh, so there's a lot more research that needs to be done before we then start rolling it out to the to the clinical side. So perhaps a, a kind of a viable alternative would be to maybe refer, you know, exercise oncology clinics are few and far between. Uh, cardiac rehab comes to mind immediately. Um, 
referring out to clinics who are that are local you know if I don't know how many you have, but I have a lot of patients who reach out to me consistently and say, you know, I've heard about your work or whatever it is. How can I get help, you know, right now? And um, I don't feel comfortable saying let's wait until. So trying to find alternatives. And I think, as you said, uh, cardiac rehab will give you the ability to perform a CPET with, with a 12 lead ECG. And maybe they just become your consultants that you work with on the prescription as, a, as opposed to doing a direct cardiac rehab program. Yeah. And I think part of that goes into risk stratification. So if a patient is a low risk patient, they haven't had a lot of those cardiotoxic drugs, they don't have pre-existing cardiovascular conditions, I think you would feel a lot more comfortable prescribing an exercise program based on uh, an exercise tolerance test. And a nice starting point is really the the cardiotoxicity ASCO guidelines that came out last year in 2017 that outlines those patients that are at high risk of cardiovascular disease based on pre-existing conditions or the type of therapy that they received. Yeah. And those patients might need to go in for to the heart failure clinic setting and have a 12-lead a ECG stress test. That's brilliant. And I think, again, it, as you said, it highlights the need for appropriate screening and particularly in relation to people who aren't in this field would get a medical history form and see it diagnosis of cancer on there and not really be sure of what questions to ask and we keep coming back and saying the type of treatment really matters and the dose of treatment really matters and that those ASCO risk guidelines really highlight that based on different types of treatment and different doses you received you could be at a higher or lower risk for cardiotoxicity yeah exactly i think those are great starting points is to use those whether you're having a higher dose of radiation therapy or chemotherapy or herceptin all of those factors go into the algorithm basically on whether you're at high risk for cardiovascular events and whether you can be classified into the the lower risk Let's uh, talk a little bit about the the difference between kind of the current practice and, and one-size-fits-all approach of uh, exercise prescription to what you propose in, in the precision exercise therapy, what the premise is for it, and what the advantages are for it. Yeah, we're really excited about this new precision exercise. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent in other clinical areas and other clinical arenas, but it's uh, the exercise oncology world is is a little bit further behind, as we mentioned before, just because it is a very young field and we're still establishing a lot of the, the basic in exercise in different populations. So with the precision exercise approach, the first step is risk stratification and evaluation. So we talked about using the ASCO guidelines as risk stratification. So that's one of the first steps is to evaluate what a patient's risk is based on their therapies, their pre-existing risk factors, and we really use VO2 peak to also guide us whether they are below their age match counterparts. 
And once we've established a risk stratification, we can then use that to guide the exercise intervention. So it's very much a two-pronged approach at the most basic level is to look at what is your risk and what can we do to target that risk with exercise. And we've proposed three different levels of this risk stratification intervention approach. So the first level was the ASCO guidelines and the exercise intervention. The next level is to look at what are some, some of the limitations of a reduced VO2 peak. So we know that VO2 peak is a derivative of uh, cardiac output and extraction. So whether a patient has a primary cardiac limitation or a muscle limitation, that would then guide the exercise prescription. So we've talked mostly about cardiovascular toxicity, but there's been very little work in muscle toxicity. So some patients might be at higher risk of muscle toxicity and they might need resistance training more so than aerobic training. So it's that those different kinds of paths that we're trying to look at, just like you do with oncology, not all cancer patients receive the same chemotherapy. We're trying to get to the point where we can apply the same concepts to exercise. I think you, you, you have an image there that really uh, highlights this well in pointing out kind of the one-size-fits-all approach uh, to a largely heterogeneous population is going to lead to some dose response issues where, um, you know, we call them non-responders versus responders, but maybe it's just that the non-responders didn't get the right dose or type of exercise to respond. And the idea with this kind of precision therapy is that the the people who are quote-unquote non-responders will be substantially less because the screening and the appropriate prescription allows us to treat a lot more people that's that's the hope is that right now we the first step is to characterize this heterogeneity in response to fitness and it's very common in oncology papers to see these waterfall plots looking at different responses based on a dose but it's much less so common in the exercise world, not just in oncology, but exercise in general, to look at this heterogeneous response to a single exercise prescription. So probably the first step is to just even characterize what is the variability in response to a single exercise prescription. And it's very likely that there will be some very high responders and low responders, and we then need to understand why? Why did some people not respond as well as others, even if they received the exact same dose at the exact same intensity and attended the same number of sessions? That's that's what we're trying to figure out the next step. I think, <laughs> I mean, you've definitely got a career ahead of you. <laughs> you've got a lot of questions <laughs> to answer. But I, I think, you know, obviously I've spoke to, to Toma quite a bit about this and your your recent paper in metastatic patients, I, I thought was fantastic because, you know, the 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 paper with Tormit outlining the need or the rationale to to have different metrics to quantify dose, particularly of aerobic exercise, um, was great. But then to see it in practice in your paper was was phenomenal too. So before we dive into it, give us a little bit of overview of 
of that kind of recent paper, the, the feasibility of exercise in, in metastatic breast cancer patients? Sure. So this was a study in 65 breast cancer uh, patients who had metastatic disease. And we looked at the impact of aerobic training, which was 36 treadmill sessions per week. And the primary endpoint was looking at feasibility as well as tolerability and safety. So this is where Tormid uh, came in and applied a lot of his very structured metrics looking at different feasibility endpoints as opposed to the, the classic endpoints, which are typically attendance or what is your recruitment rate. So this was in a population that has been relatively under researched in the metastatic setting is what can we do? Can we apply exercise in this setting? And can it be helpful in some patient reported outcomes and VO2 peak? What, one of the things I really like about that, as you said, is, is going beyond uh, the kind of traditional metrics of just attendance at a session. Um, and I think you know, your work in particular is really going to to set the standard for the field in doing a better job of reporting adherence to prescription. Um, it's not good enough anymore to just say that they show, showed up. It's, well, what did they do while they were there? Um, and I think what I loved about your paper is you really highlighted the challenges in, in some people trying to reach these intensities or durations of exercise. Yeah, it was surprising and that's really why you need to go another level deeper and like you said not just look at attendance which is typically reported but apply some of these metrics again drawing from the oncology world on what is the relative dose intensity what is permanent discontinuation or dose interruption all of these terms that are ubiquitous in oncology but are virtually unheard of in exercise but they should be because exercise, you want to deliver a dose just like you want to deliver a drug. And we have no idea whether that dose is being achieved unless we start to look a little bit deeper at these other metrics. I think another aspect of, of this paper and kind of the combined two of them was the idea, it's something I've been really thinking about a lot, presenting the mean versus individual results and how the mean, you know, if there's a mean improvement or no change, whatever it is, the mean outcome uh, may hide a lot of the individual responses. And, you know, while 80% may improve on a program, there's 20% that didn't, let's start to figure out why. And I think adding individual responses to our papers along with these metrics that you've outlined gives us such a clearer picture. If someone didn't improve... Well, you know, they only came 70%, and of that 70%, half of that time they were able to reach the dose that we asked them to do. So maybe it's a dose issue, there's something else going on as opposed to a lack of exercise effect. Yeah, absolutely. Or just assuming that exercise works. Because yeah. on average, there was a 5% improvement, but that could be a 10% loss and a 15% gain on. So, you know, the range. So that's where I think these metrics will be very useful for for exercise oncology as a whole and the field of exercise in, in other clinical settings as well. 
let's get into some of the nitty gritty in you know this metastatic population can be quite challenging to work with uh what what were some of the more cha- what were some of the challenges that you faced uh you know conducting this trial a lot of it had to do with these women some of them were undergoing therapy which is very challenging when you're undergoing therapy and dealing with a lot of the side effects so we we saw uh, in our population that about half of the missed sessions were due to health-related uh, conditions. So they would call and report that they were having uh, pain or fatigue and they couldn't attend those sessions because of these uh, health-related issues. So that's one of the, the major c- concerns or issues that these women face are a lot of the the health-related concerns with coming into a scenario or a setting three times a week to do an exercise prescription is dealing with a lot of the health-related side effects. And, you you know, looking at the paper there, (laughs) this feels like a defense for you. (laughs) Looking at the paper, there was a few abnormal heart rate responses that required, um, you know, some some modification or that you, you know, outlined as adverse events. Um, that is a big question I get a lot of the time in, in knowing when to stop, how to stop, what do we identify as an abnormal heart rate response? Can you talk a little bit about what you saw, you know, why you stopped some people versus maybe let others continue? Yeah, so we have a, a set threshold of heart rate related events. So we have our zones, we have our five different zones set up. And if a patient is 15 beats over a set zone, then that triggers an event where we will dose modify the session. And if the heart rate does not respond, then that would trigger uh, an early treatment um, interruption. So we set up set standards based on heart rate. And we know that a lot of women who are on anthracycline-based therapy, there are autonomic issues associated with with chemotherapy. So a lot of them would come in with high heart rates at baseline, and they would have a high heart rate response during exercise. So that's an important consideration for individuals who are on anthracycline-based chemotherapy that there are autonomic changes that occur as a result of that therapy. So that's an important consideration when uh, working with people that are on therapy. What I really like about this this kind of recent movement and, and these tables that outline clear um, events that require dose modification or even missed sessions is, to my mind, it's the normalization of things that just happen you know um right. whether, whether it's a result of exercise or you know it's treatment related or whatever the case is having our papers outline that you know these things happen you know particularly in clinical populations where you know they they are per, perhaps more susceptible to dizziness or fatigue or reasons to modify exercise i think being clear and outlining and, and and reporting these will be much more beneficial, not only for researchers, you know, talking to each other, but for practitioners reading this. When they read your paper and see that there was, you know, 30% of patients had some sort of abnormal heart rate response, that gives them a clear indication of what to expect when they're working with this population. Exactly. That's 
the hope is all of this research and it needs to be a little bit more rigorous to categorize the safety events, the dose interruption, dose continuation, all of these factors that will be very important when it does move or translate to the, the clinical arena. And we're trying to understand why some patients have these extremely tachycardic events or come in with high heart rates, what is the, the correct response? So I think the field is slowly progressing towards that area. And as more and more researchers start to, to categorize and document all of these things, I think it will really help future uh, clinical translation. But we need to, to start categorizing these and, and just it's very challenging to categorize everything, but it's very important. Yeah, and I think what you said in that this list or this process, this model will likely uh, improve and evolve over the years as we start to figure out um, what's the best fit. Certainly different populations are going to have different checklists, different treatments are going to have different elements and, and frequency of dose modifications um so what what i kind of gathered from my conversation with Torben in particular was um it's more of a framework rather than a specific you need to adopt our model and our checklist it's it's just a kind of call to be more clear in reporting uh, the exercise dose which is difficult because as you said like unlike pharma pharmacology it's not just we're giving you you know, 500 milligrams or whatever, quantifying a dose and deciding, you know, you've kind of used METs there. Um, trying to find a way to quantify the dose is, is challenging when it comes to exercise as opposed to just, you know, a, a, a known dose of a pill. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is challenging. And I think, you know, as Tormid mentioned, it's not that this will be the, the set structure for every single setting. I think initially in early studies, it will be important to establish these baselines and very stringently categorize a lot of these outcomes so that in future studies, we'll know which individuals or which patients need this kind of structured and rigorous attention versus others that uh, that really are okay to go out and do their home-based exercise. And it really comes back to that risk stratification on identifying who needs this rigorous supervised approach versus others who uh, don't need such uh, supervised and, and rigorous structure. Speaking of the dose, looking at the, the RDI for your patients, there's there's quite a variability in in the RDI relative dose intensity, as in how how much they completed versus what was planned uh, for each patient. You know, you've got quite a few who are under forty percent, and then you've got you know five or six who are up towards ninety to a hundred percent. Can you speak a little bit about the variability there and kind of you know what you think? Talking about screen and what made someone more susceptible to to have a low RDI versus a high RDI? There are a couple of factors that we found. Certain women were able to complete a higher dose and uh, and achieved uh, more benefit based on that. So, for women that had fewer than three lines of previous therapy. 
that were they were able to complete that higher relative dose intensity. So I think a lot of it comes back to that uh, multiple hit. So women who didn't have so many hits based on their therapy, they were able to tolerate that dose, achieve a higher relative dose intensity, and that corresponded to a greater improvement in VO2 peak. What I love about that is, and you outlined this in the paper, and if we use traditional metrics like loss to follow-up or uh, attendance, um, that's not going to capture any of that. You know, you only had you know one one dropout or one loss to follow-up, and the attendance was pretty pretty high. So, in traditional uh, reporting standards you know, you, there's not re- really much to talk about there. But using this, you know, these metrics and dose response issues, you can really dig into the nuances of this. And I think this is going to, again, give such a clearer picture of what it's like to work with this population. And, that you know, not all the time it's all sunshine and rainbows and everyone improves. There are a lot of challenges in it. That's right. I think this is the real world on patients trying to get them to exercise a lot of what they're dealing with. And if you start to get at a few of the the more nuanced metrics, you can glean a lot more information. And this then leads to further research on, so with women who have greater than three lines of therapy, what can we do? Are there different exercise prescriptions that they may be able to tolerate better than the prescription that we used for just solely aerobic-based? So I think you can get a lot more information that leads to further research when you have a lot more nuanced details on why somebody maybe respond or, or not respond so I think that's what's exciting for, for future work is you can start to, you know, delve a little bit deeper into greater risk stratification and understanding different tolerances and responses. So in terms of the dose response issues, what has this study, uh, you know, given you in terms of food for thought for um, perhaps the exercise prescription moving forward for this population or, or if you were knowing what you know now having completed it how would you change the the study design or what you you did i i don't think we would change anything about the the study design it uh you always learn something regardless of what the what the design is i think the the great thing that we learned is we are applying the the structured dose modification and all of these feasibility metrics to all of our current studies so we'll be able to look at different responders or non-responders and different reasons why using these different metrics. For the metastatic setting, I think the most important uh, piece we learned is that that dose of prior therapy, the numbers of lines of prior therapy, that impacts the, the tolerability. So we know for future studies that Uh, recruiting women that have three or more lines of prior therapy we need to look at a a different approach you know if there's people that come to you with three or more lines of therapy how do you think you would adjust the prescription or or what (laughs) i'm probably asking you to to divulge too much of your research (laughs) (laughs) it's it's an interesting question that 
I, I don't think we have an answer to, and we'll need to look a little bit more into that. I think with a lot of different clinical populations, you need to start to look at different combinations. So it may be that exercise is not the, the one and only fix for these women. Exercise is a very big hammer, but in certain cases you need additional strategies. So maybe that's nutritional, maybe it's pharmacological, if you already have pre-existing cardiovascular conditions. So I think the big take-home message is that uh, yes, exercise is a great tool, but sometimes you need a little bit of extra help. What? So a, a couple of questions on um, kind of more your, your global perspective on things. A lot of the times we we exclude patients who are too active or are too I don't want to say inactive but unable to complete the the exercise protocol or or unwilling to to do it perhaps from performance status. Um, what are your thoughts on someone who's who's you know their performance status is so low where they may not be enrolled in trials like this what's what's the protocol or how do you move forward with screening for those or, or you know working with those individuals I think the individuals that are at very high risk I think that is the under-researched area that is wide open and ripe for research are individuals that already have cardiovascular disease and are undergoing therapy. We know virtually nothing about this population and how they respond to exercise. I think there's been one study that looked at childhood cancer survivors with a low ejection fraction and did an exercise intervention in that population. And there was a, a retrospective study that looked at heart failure patients from the HF action trial and showed that exercise was not beneficial in that population. But there's not been a prospective study that has looked at these very high-risk individuals. So that's an area that really needs to be looked at a lot more. This is this comes back to me being on Twitter. Uh, there's a ton of really fit people out there who undergo chemotherapy and independently exercise themselves or come to people looking for help you know what you were talking about with the dose issue that's really interesting you know perhaps higher fitness levels or, or people who are more active throughout and leading into it need less dose modifications or maybe able to maintain certain intensities um longer or better throughout treatment that's a that's a great point. And we have a study looking at that very question on whether individuals who are very fit at the beginning of therapy versus those that are not fit at the beginning of therapy, what is their response? So we're, we're looking at the divergence between these two uh, different populations that probably have a very different metabolic state, cardiovascular health, and what is their response to therapy. And we don't know. There's been very little work looking at the high-fit population. The majority of our studies are targeted towards individuals that are low-fit because we think that they are at greatest risk. Based on VO2 peak, we know if you have a low VO2 peak, you are at greater risk of secondary effects. So that that's the population we're looking at. But there's certainly uh, very little work done in the area of the, the high fit, the athletes who who are diagnosed with with cancer. 
this this was phenomenal, Jessica. I can't thank you enough for for sharing your knowledge and, and insights, um, particularly into the intricacies of, of some of your work that I think gets lost in reading papers at times. Um, so to have your first-hand experience has been phenomenal, and I'm sure uh, the listeners will really appreciate it. So I do appreciate you stopping by and, and chatting to us. Thanks so much.